0: Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. have a great interview lined up for you today. I had the opportunity to sit down with Jacob Skepis from JPS Fitness. It was an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. He's an extremely knowledgeable guy. And we chatted in detail about training in a calorie deficit, so there's plenty of gold nuggets for you in today's episode. Make sure you also hang around for this week's social media question of the week at the end of the show, which is to do with tracking condiments and things like cooking oil and whatnot in your calories and whether or not you need to be doing that. So hang around for that. But for now, let's get stuck into the interview. All right, Jacob, welcome to the show, mate.
1: Thanks, Danny, pleasure being here, man.
0: I really appreciate you coming on, and guys, what Jacob and I are going to be talking about today is training in a calorie deficit and how that differs from training in a calorie surplus, a number of the different factors that come into play. Jacob has a lot of experience in this, uh, in this area and I want to go into detail about a number of those different factors today. So Jacob, to kickstart things mate, let's discuss the importance that you put on maintaining strength in a calorie deficit and as you're trying to lose body fat.
1: Yeah, sure. And I guess uh, the first place to start is understanding, you know, what's happening when we're in a calorie deficit. So I presume that a, a lot of the listeners are going to be familiar with these terms. Uh, so obviously, when we're dieting, the primary goal is fat loss. Um, that means you know, energy balance uh, is favouring expenditure because we're not consuming enough calories, and this brings with it an inherent trade-off. Uh, that is, you know, we're going to be losing body fat, liberating uh, tissue. Um, And building less muscle so not as much uh, synthesis uh, of new protein and overall there's this physiological shift towards catabolic processes uh, and they exceed anabolic processes which is a really good thing because that's what we need to lose fat right which is the goal of dieting so I guess in terms of you know training to retain muscle we need to understand what builds the muscle because there's many things we should continue to do uh, during a dieting phase uh, because it's no different to trying to build muscle there are however some important considerations so i think the first place to start is understanding what builds muscle so when we train uh, there's mechanical tension or metabolic stress um through resistance uh, placed on the body which disrupts homeostasis signals a host of adaptive processes that occur um signaling anabolic pathways and we start to build uh, muscle new proteins and all of those things however Things change during a dieting phase as we don't have sufficient resources to go towards recovery and adaptation, and hence, at best, for the most part, we can simply maintain muscle. Now, there's only a few contexts where body recomposition can occur, and that is losing fat whilst building muscle. Beginners, overweight people, the genetically blessed, if you're coming back from a period of uh, time away from the gym you're enhanced using those uh, Mexican supplements uh, <laughs> or or you go towards optimizing your protocol. So, you know, it's not uncommon for some people to start dieting for fat loss and, you know, they've been using a bro split and they move to higher frequencies, they improve their technique um, and just adopt better pro- progression schemes and they can, you know, build muscle and lose fat. However, for the most part, we have to accept that we're not going to be building any new muscle tissue we're simply trying to preserve lean tissue so we need to look at the training principles because they're going to tell us you know what um is most highly correlated with gaining muscle and then we need to continue to try and uphold um you know our training in such a way that we're going to be retaining that muscle so the big variables at play here are volume that is the amount of work done and that's going to dictate the magnitude of adaptation so we want to be keeping 10 to 20 sets uh you know per muscle group per week um for the most part especially if we're trying to build muscle and we'll talk about some factors that influence uh how many we should be performing when we're dieting for fat loss and this is supported by a lot of the research by james krieger brad schoenfeld a lot of the guys uh doing great work on you know hypertrophy and the second variable is intensity and people typically measure intensity as a percentage of one or max and as you mentioned you know mm. um, how we maintain strength during a dieting phase but in the context of hypertrophy it should probably be measured uh, as effort and you know proximity to failure and that's where we use RPE scale that is rate yep. of perceived effort or the RIR which is reps in reserve, and there's a broad spectrum of rep ranges and intensities that can lead to muscle growth, um, and that's gonna be dependent on proximity to failure for the most part. So with low load training, we do need to go towards uh, failure to maximize motor unit recruitment. However, with higher loads, we don't need to go as close to failure because we're gonna see some maximal motor unit recruitment within the first couple of reps. So it's important to remember that the intensity of efforts is going to dictate the training quality and the type of adaptation for the most part. Um, but again, we want to be using between you know 60 to 85% of one rep max or RPs or RIR of you know six to ten, one to four, those kind of things mm. um, during a hypertrophy phase. Um, and the same holds true for holds true, sorry, for dieting. And again, frequency is just how often the system is trained. So we need to make sure that our frequency um, of lifting. Is you know meeting what the research is uh, showing us to be optimal, and that is a minimum of two times a week. And again, yep. we need most importantly progressive overload, which is uh, you know progression in a number of variables, whether it's volume, frequency, intensity, uh, mm. reps, sets, all those kind of things. Um, but it has to also be disruptive. Now, here's where things get interesting. When we diet. Um, There's a lot of uh, factors that influence how we set up a training protocol. So what I outlined before, I guess, are the nuts and bolts of uh, program design for hypertrophy without taking into account being at a calorie deficit. Mm -hmm. So when we start to reduce energy intake, um, there's a number of changes that need to occur to how we structure things. So the most important thing to know uh, for those listeners out there who may be dieting is that just because you've started a diet for phallus doesn't mean you should automatically deviate from uh, the prescribed recommendations uh, that I outlined just now um, yep. because you will lose muscle. What built the muscle will keep the muscle. So for the most part, at the start of a, tra- a diet, your training shouldn't be changing too much. However,
0: that's um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quickly stop you there. That's one thing I wanted to, to touch on and, and something I wanted you to go into a little bit is And I'm sure you're probably about to, but coming into a a dieting phase after you've been in your calorie surplus um, or probably more so towards the end of your calorie surplus or your gaining or improvement phase, do you typically try and bring the volume down towards the end of that phase so that by the time you start your calorie deficit, by the time you start your fat loss phase, your overall volume is quite low and that kind of gives you some room to move later on?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, nutritional uh, concordance with training is a great idea. And as you mentioned, uh, having a low volume phase uh, before starting a diet is a great thing because we can see that uh, increase in volume that's going to further those uh, anabolic pathways and the signaling of uh, muscle growth essentially um, despite the reduction in calories. Yes, so I definitely recommend that. But as I was alluding to, once you start getting into the diet, um, you know, things change. And the size of the calorie deficit is going to determine, you know, how much change is going to occur in your training, the duration of your dieting phase. So if you're doing, say, an eight week cut, I dare say you're not going to need to make too many changes to your diet, um, uh, to your training, sorry. Your body fat percentage. Again, if you're cutting from 18 to 14 percent body fat, you're likely not going to see too much of an impact to your training, and you shouldn't be changing things a great deal. And how far below your body fat settling range you are. So again, if your body fat percentage is going well below, um, you know, the range or the homeostatic uh, area that you're comfortable at, then you're going to see a lot more. Uh, you know, impact in how you're performing and how you're going to have to set up things to maintain muscle because remember muscle growth is an energetically costly process and as you diet there's less total of energy available and the expensive mm-hmm. nature of generating new muscle tissue um, is just not a priority so hy- hypercaloric conditions the body prioritizes its energy spending on vital functions not anabolic processes so the longer you diet the leaner you get um, the harder it is to retain muscle, and that's where things need to change. So, obviously, that's where we're going to get into things today. So, I guess, you know, we talk about anabolism and things like that. And it's important to, I guess, look to the research, you know, that's assessed, um, you know, individuals who have dieted down to, you know, sub 10% of body fat to see what kind of, uh, you know, effects on the hormonal markers we can see, you know, especially the hormonal markers that are associated with muscle growth. And interestingly, there was a study that just came out, um, this year by Mitchell and others, um, that assessed nine natural lifters who dieted for 16 weeks. Um, and they got below 10% body fat and they saw a, you know, 38% reduction from memory, uh, in testosterone and something around a, f- a 50% reduction in free testosterone. So their testosterone levels are going from, you know, the normal range, top end of the normal range, all the way down to the bottom end of the normal range. And for those listeners who are interested in the physiology of this stuff, uh, that's around, you know, bottom end of the range is 250. Uh, nanograms per deciliter and up around a thousand nanograms per deciliter. So we're seeing a big drop in test. Also, Huge. insulin-like, growth, yeah, insulin-like growth factor drops, and that's you know a hormone that's responsible for protein synthesis and blocks breakdown of protein. Um, in this study in particular, they saw an average drop of twenty-six percent. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of studies. There's another one off the top of my head by uh, Rosso uh, and others that was back in two thousand and thirteen, I think, and that was a longer study. That was over 12 months, and there was a six-month dieting phase and then six-month post-show, and this was just one subject, uh, Peter Fishin, uh, who's also a natural bodybuilder, and he dropped um, from like 15% to 4.5% body fat, and again, we saw massive reductions uh, in testosterone, so 75% reduction in testosterone, cortisol increased by like 100% from memory, um, you know, thyroid reduction, all that kind of stuff, and strength decreased massively during the prep and didn't even recover um, until six months afterwards. And I think there was another study in 2010. Oh, That's the one. Meestu, uh, I think it was. I don't know how to pronounce these names. It's always yeah. a guess. Um, and they saw, you know, a very modest, it was a smaller drop in testosterone. But that was only with 11 weeks of dieting. And uh, the subject got down to around, you know, 60, 6.5 uh, percent of body fat. Um, so the point of all this is that the duration of the diet and the body fat percentage we get to um, influences hormonal markers the most. And that is what is going to significantly <laughs> alter the way that we set up training. So if, like I said, if you're dieting for eight weeks and you're cutting down from 20 to 15% body fat, then you should be setting up your training and you know, applying um, you know, the principles of training and the variables as if you were in a gaining phase because you're not going to see too much detriment um, to just your health in general um, or your ability to perform in the gym. It's when we start to dip below our settling point, diet for long periods um, and you know get quite lean, uh, that's when we start to see uh, issues arise and how training programs need to be changed. So, to answer your question, I know a very long-winded uh, answer here, but but many people often think that maintaining strength is the key to maintaining muscle. Um, however, and I used to think this as well, but I think prioritising strength, aka load on the bar, at the expense of volume probably isn't a good idea, uh, because we know through you know some pretty high-quality research that volume is you know a primary driver of muscle growth. So if we're sacrificing the total amount of work we're doing. Um, just to keep a weight on the bar, well, I dare say that we're putting ourselves at a greater risk of losing tissue. So I think we need to maintain volume um, as best we can and also pay very close attention to, um, yes, strength, so the numbers that we're lifting, but we can be a little bit more pliable in terms of how we, we structure training and how much uh, I guess priority we place on keeping the load on the bar because we also know through some uh, pretty good research that's coming out at the moment that we have a very broad spectrum of intensities that we can build muscle with, and you know, provided that sufficient uh, intensity of effort that is proximity to failure uh, is there, we can still maintain muscle, and it's not uncommon for a lot of natural bodybuilders to use blood flow restriction training. Yeah. Um, you know, high high rep, low low training towards the end of their contest prep, and they seem to hold on to their muscle uh, quite well. But again, I wouldn't be doing this kind of training for a long time. So, in terms of maintaining strength, I guess my answer would be, uh, yeah, it's important if you're not uh, dieting for really long periods and you're not getting seriously lean, because again, you shouldn't see too much of a reduction um, in you know performance in general. But the leaner you get, the longer you diet. That's when you know we need to be very uh, frugal with how we set up training, and we can, uh, yeah, adjust things to make sure that we're ticking the boxes. And strength is going to be one of those things that comes uh, becomes an issue because obviously, as we diet, we lose body weight, um, which means our leverage change. changed. So if you're measuring strength, uh, you know, on your squat. Uh, you're not going to see the same kind of squat that you would when you're five kilos heavier and eating an abundance of food it's going to feel very different it's going to look very different and as a result of eating less you have you know again less energy available which means there's going to be a uh, lower mechanical force production so you're simply not just going to be you're not going to be able to push the kind of numbers that you were in the past and if we're uh, just looking at strength as a percentage of one rep max and keeping weight on the bar, then, you know, we're really setting ourselves up for for failure because it's just not going to be feasible once you start to dig below those, you know, uh, low ends of what we see, um, you know, in terms of body fat.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you brought up some really good points there. One of those being about the differences that... um the, the differences in your body once you do reach that extremely low level of body fat percentage and you're below that set point that you're used to. And one of those is, in my opinion, very important, obviously, is managing loads and um, the likelihood, or I guess, the risk of injury once you are at that level of body fat. So what what is kind of the difference in um, in time periods that you spend... I guess, training and then deloading in the off-season compared to when you're in a dieting phase? So, like, how often would you deload in a, in a gaining phase or an off-season?
1: Yeah, so, a really good question. In the off-season, I think you have a lot more wiggle room. Um, I like to plan in deloads, you know, every four to six weeks. Again, this is going to be dependent on the individual that I'm working with, but for me specifically, usually between four to six weeks it's it's going to be a roaming deload because if things are just ticking along nicely and progress is occurring and fatigue hasn't exceeded uh recovery then we're just going to keep ticking along with the program um however in a you know dieting phase we need to be a lot more diligent with how we manage fatigue because obviously we're in a constant state of fatigue, especially uh, when you're well below your body fat settling point. So it's important to continually uh, implement deloads on a more frequent basis and to make sure that they're structured. They're not, you know, roving like they can be in the off season. Um, and again, you know, in terms of deload managing fatigue. Uh, in the off-season, we would see much more assertive progression schemes, potentially, you know, overreaching at times. And yep. for those listeners who aren't aware of what overreaching is, that's, again, just when um, fatigue exceeds recovery and we see reductions in performance, um, you know, which- Theoretically leads to super compensation, but we don't know uh, with great certainty whether or not that exists. But in the off season, you're just going to be training harder, you know, and you can push things a little more. Whereas when you're dieting, um, you've got to be a little bit more conservative with how you progress um, and on shorter time scales as well, because we're having those deloads more frequently. And again, they've got to be pretty set in stone because you're just run running a you know greater risk of overreaching and non-functional overreaching injury and then you know Mm. potentially burnout and if your goal is to look good remember like if we're dieting for fat loss the goal is to look better um and if we get injured we're on the sidelines if you're on the sidelines you know and you can't train you're not going to look better your motivation will start to dwindle and not to mention that mood states are already up the shitter when you're you're dieting so you know any form of uh niggle pain or discomfort that isn't um you know other, shouldn't otherwise be there and is, is a result of just too uh aggr- being too aggressive in the gym then it's simply not worth it we really do need to consider the cost to benefit ratio and the cost of being too aggressive in a dieting phase or not taking a deload um is far greater than the benefit of potentially holding on to you know a couple of hundred grams of muscle by pushing things that little bit harder that little bit longer
0: Definitely, man. And something that I've picked up since I, you know, over the past three to four years since I started competing is, is I initially I really struggled to get my head around, you know, taking that deload, taking that time to back off a little bit and, and recognizing niggles or recognizing when I do feel like I'm starting to overreach a little bit. Cause I, all, I really felt like, you know, I'm wasting time here. I'm not getting the most out of my training. I'm not pushing myself hard enough. But as you've just said then, like, uh, in terms of injury prevention and the, the reduction in risk of injury, it's huge. And, you know, your training quality is going to be so much higher that following week after your deload. Um, your motivation is going to be still peaking. And, yeah, so for anyone listening now that is in that dieting phase for a prolonged period of time and you haven't been deloading or you're hesitant to deload because you feel like you're being lazy or not working hard enough, then 100% guys take that deload. Take care of your body because, as Jacob mentioned, if you're if you're on the sidelines, you're making zero progress at all. If anything, you're probably backtracking. So a week of slightly reduced loads, um, some extra recovery is going to do you a world of good.
1: Yeah, definitely,
0: definitely. All right. Uh, what I wanted to also talk to you about, and, and guys, we are going to touch on towards the end some of um, Jacob's recovery protocols that he likes to follow in off season and uh, while he's prepping as well, but. With your compound lifts, so let's say, kind of your lifts that you're using as benchmarks for strength throughout your prep, um, are you working off percentages? Are you working off RPE or RIR? Um, and also similar with your accessory movements, like what, how are you kind of judging what weights you're using and, and how hard you're going with those sets?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think this this is where a lot of people get confused uh, because they just don't understand the definition of intensity. So intensity is just how hard something is, and when it comes to me- measuring performance, um, like I mentioned, you know, we don't want to see any drastic changes to you know obviously load or effort. So we we need to manage things and what i look at with my program is uh obviously i've got some key movements that are the the benchmark like you mentioned for my performance and i'm looking at at the load on the bar i want to maintain the load on the bar but then i also incorporate some back offsets for these exercises which is a very useful strategy um especially in longer more aggressive uh dieting phases where we see people get very lean because it allows us to uphold both the mechanical work from you know the heavy weights, as it would typically be measured in terms of percentage of one max, as well as get in some volume, um, you know, with lighter loads without you know risking uh, injury, with obviously doing too much work at you know too high an intensity. So I have the top sets where I'm working within some parameters. So I like to use the RPE scale in conjunction with uh, percentage based programming uh, because I think one without the other leaves a lot lot of chance really and you know too much too much of anything isn't a good thing um, and especially when it comes to program design during a dining phase I think the the more parameters we put around things uh, the better outcome we will get so using a percentage based uh, load prescription uh, for example I use my squat I'm currently working around you know 75% uh, for two top sets of between six to eight reps and that's within a range. So I've got, you know, 5 to 10 kilos either side, depending on how I'm feeling, but I can't exceed the prescribed RPE range of, say, 8 to 9 for that week. Mm. So there's no hard and fast numbers. It's not, here's 180, you've got to hit 2 by 8. Um, it's, okay, hit 2 by 8 at 170 to 190 you know, within that range, for example, at an RPE of eight to nine. Don't exceed that. Yeah, And if I'm feeling great on the day, I might push up to 185. Again, using the RPE scale requires a lot of experience and, you know, objectivity, uh, even though it is a subjective measure. Um, But yeah, I think having ranges um, of intensity uh, as measured by load as well as effort are really useful during a dieting phase. Um, And then just making sure that, you know, we apply progress from week to week, whether it's adding a set, uh, adding a rep or adding load, even though I would be very careful adding sets uh, during a dieting phase because we can accrue quite a bit of uh, volume and we know that volume uh, causes fatigue. So we need to be very careful in terms of where we're adding sets. Um, But for the compounds, like I said, that's how I do things. For the isolations, uh, again, I'm using the RPE here it's going to be highly dependent on how well things went uh, earlier in the session with those compound movements. You know, I could go gangbusters and be feeling really great. One minute hit some top sets and then, you know, everything starts going downhill and, you know, the numbers I would typically hit for an accessory movement just aren't the, you know, aren't there. Um, like they were the previous week, which means I need to a- adjust things and just focus on meeting uh, the parameters of the effort, which is RPE scale, um, what I'm currently using.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I love that. love that. A couple more questions, mate. And, and guys, for everyone listening, obviously you can tell <laughs> just by... Uh, how much he knows and how, and the sound of his voice. Jacob lives and breathes this stuff. So, uh, mate, I think you and I need to catch up at some stage and I might just hit record and we can um, just, just have a bit of a conversation. But a few more questions. Uh, I want you to keep Lots. this relatively... Yeah, I want you to keep this relatively broad because it can obviously change depending on what lift you're about to do. But give us a quick rundown of... A, uh, an example of a warm-up routine from the moment you kind of enter the gym to the moment you start your session so nothing like specific exercises but like do you go in and do some mobility then activation um, self myofascial release and then get into some warm-up sets or what's your what's your routine
1: i love this question because i probably defy uh, the advice of every single fitness professional uh, in the world my warm-up consists of for the squat the bar by 8 60 by 5 100 by 4 140 by 2 150 by 1 and then I'm into my working sets that is it I don't do any mobility I don't do any activation work I'm very fortunate that number one I'm built to lift weights number two I've been very uh, yeah lucky over the years not to have any injuries uh, serious injuries that is and number three I've learned how to Lift with sound technique and form, which I think is the basis for, uh, you know, efficient and effective training. And a warm-up by nature should be designed to prepare you for training. And my warm-ups are very short because I need very little time to prepare for training simply because, you know, I've just been doing it for so long. And again, I'm just put together in a way that makes it really easy for me. Um, so I'm probably a really bad example of how to warm up for training because literally um, you know I run multiple businesses Um, I have an hour max you know (coughs) to train which means I've just got to get in there get the work done Um, but again I will say that this is my approach in the off season and this has been my approach thus far in my contest prep I'm about 10 weeks in now, I think, a little bit longer perhaps, I'm not counting, um, and as the diet continues, I will need to pay more attention to my warm-ups, and I know that for a fact, simply because um, body temperature will be lower um, as a result of you know a reduction in thermogenesis, um, you know, the joint pain will start to come on as a, you know, function of losing fat tissue. We know that fat can uh, lubricate the joints. Um, and just things are going to feel a little bit funky again, due to that change in leverages. So I know that as I diet, and I think for listeners, this is really important the, the leaner you get, uh, and the lower you get below your body fat settling range. And we sp- we've spoken about this a lot, but these are the big, big, uh, variables that influence, you know, training. Um, this is when you need to start prioritizing the one percenters. And that is, you know, your warm-ups, your, your rehab, your prehab, and making sure that you get blood flow, uh, you know, circulation to the muscles. You, the muscles are warm. You've ingrained the motor patterns for the specific movements that you're going to be performing in your session. Uh, body temperature is elevated and neural systems are primed and you're ready to go. Um, in, your, in your off-season or when you're eating at a calorie surplus – or simply, if you're you just haven't been dieting for long, you're not that lean. Um, you can get away with a lot more. But when you're lean, yeah, you need to you need to pay a lot of attention to the minute details because uh, one small error and that could put you on the sideline. And like we said, if you're on the sideline, well, you're gonna you're gonna be having a hard time.
0: Yeah, no, I, I really like that. Like you hit the nail on the head. You're making sure that you like specifically to you are ready to go for the lift that you're about to do and that's what matters most so everybody's different um but the main thing is is as you said like you're making sure you're ready for that movement i think a lot of people and, and i've spoken about this a lot on the podcast in terms of warming up and um and changing your mindset around what you do in your warm-up but the whole purpose as you mentioned of a warm-up is to make sure that you're ready to do that lift so re- you're ready to train it's not about just getting blood flowing and, and just getting the body moving you really are priming yourself for the exercise you're about to do. So that's awesome. I want to quickly touch on uh, your mindset coming into a fat loss phase. Um, I don't know about you, but when I initially started competing and and even just doing a a genuine uh, general fat loss phase, I would come into it kind of all guns blazing, like fully committed mentally, like, you know, 100% bullet a gate, Um, whereas the last two comps that I've done or the last two or three that I've done, I've really kind of kicked back. Um, haven't really kind of, I wouldn't say that I. I was definitely 100% invested, but I wasn't. I didn't start my cut and go in my head. I didn't flick that switch and just go, "All right, we're on now. We've got the next 16 weeks to go," and then I'm not thinking about anything but training and nutrition, blah blah blah. I'm a lot more relaxed now, and I've found that's helped me actually make a lot more progress, keeping cortisol levels down, um, enjoy my training for a lot longer. So, what is your what is your kind of mindset coming into the early stages of a prep or a fat loss phase, and then in towards the the end, towards the uh, the pointy end as well?
1: Yeah, you sound like you've learned a lot from your prior uh, dieting experiences, which is great to see, man. Um, a lot of people do flick the switch, and I was definitely guilty of this early on in my uh, my training career when I got on stage. My first few contest preps, it was very much, okay, contest prep started on, you know, yeah, shows, shows over, turn it off, and we just, you know, become a gluttonous pig. However maturity and obviously many many years in the trenches working with a lot of people and learning about this whole uh dieting process I've I've come to realize that it's instead much like a dimmer switch so instead of being on and off it's a dimmer switch so we we over time are turning up the switch and you know increasing the uh the light so to speak so that we're monitoring more closely more variables and i think this relates to mindset quite well because at the start of the contest prep we can have things turned down just enough so that there's a lot of flexibility enjoyment and we can just yeah like you mentioned cruise our way uh into the diet make it feel very much um a lifestyle instead of you know this all-encompassing overbearing process that you know it can be if you go in you know balls to the wall from from the get-go so at the start of a prep or a dieting phase i just sort of cruise my way in and i try to stay as poised as possible and just over time when fat loss starts to slow down or you know the diet becomes increasingly important or i'm getting closer to the stage that's when i start to turn things up and really monitor and manage all variables a little bit more closely and i think as a function of you know competitive bodybuilding we need to become a little bit more obsessive if we want excellence and I think that there's a time and place for that but it shouldn't be forever so yeah I think the dimmer switch analogy is a great way for people to conceptualize um, how their mindset should be uh, adjusting you know at various time points throughout uh, a diet or, or their training career and again, you know, this relates to if they're dieting for a holiday, you know, they're turning the switch up when they go on holiday, they turn it back down, but they shouldn't turn it completely off. You know what I mean? Um, so definitely, I think that's a great way to definitely. think about it. And it can help manage stress. Like you said, um, you know, if we're, if we have things turned up from, you know, t- week 20 all the way through to the final week of our contest prep, we're going to be burnt out, right? That like. That light globe is going to explode by the end of things. However, if we slowly turn things up, you know, it's not going to blow as much. And if you're lucky, it won't blow at all. But, you know, we can manage stress a lot better that way. And that obviously has a number of benefits to fat loss, performance, mood state, and just overall well-being and sustainability long-term.
0: I love that, man. It's, it's, it's absolute gold. I actually, the, the last episode I did with Robbie Frame, um, it's quite funny. He, he used pretty much the exact, the I taught exact Robbie uh, what a <laughs> Oh, man. So funny. I think he's, uh, I think he's tried to take your idea and change it a little bit. So people don't think that he copied you. He, he started to use the example of a, of a, uh, a volume switch and his example was <laughs> going to a music festival and walking in and the, and the volume's
1: all the way up. <laughs> I'm going to kill him. Oh, man. No, no, so no, good. It's good. It's so good. good. It's good to see that no, it's, uh, it's yeah, people, are, correct. people are hearing about these kind of things. And, you know, Robbie obviously has uh, you know, a huge audience. So it's awesome to see that he's, uh, yeah, taken that concept, made it his own because I know he loves to party and go to these <laughs> kind of music festivals. So very much uh, relatable to him, which is awesome.
0: Awesome, mate. Well, Jacob, really do appreciate you coming on the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast today. As I said, I think we should definitely catch up and have a chat. Um, maybe even later on, I'll a couple see. months down the track, we'll have to do another episode because um, there's plenty more to talk about. But uh, again, thanks for joining us today, mate. I'm sure everyone listening has gained a ton of value from today. And I'll make sure that all your social media links and whatnot are in the show notes. So guys that are listening, guys and girls that are listening, you can go and check out um, All of Jacob's content, there's plenty there. There's plenty for you to learn. Um, So, yeah, thanks, mate. Not a problem, man. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. All right, guys, make sure you stick around for this week's social media question of the week. All right, guys, what an interview. Jacob is an extremely knowledgeable guy. And, again, I just want to thank him for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge The episode was a little bit longer than usual, but that's fine because of the content. And as I mentioned at the start, all the little gold nuggets in there are invaluable. So again, hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, make sure that you take a screenshot of this episode and share it with your friends on social media within the next 30 minutes, whether that be Instagram, Snapchat, or even better, posting the link to your Facebook. But for now, let's finish up the episode and move on to this week's social media question of the week. And that question is, should I be tracking cooking oil in my macros. So this person in particular had been following flexible dieting for some time, but had never been tracking things like cooking oil or even condiments and whatnot in their calorie intake for the day. Now, it may seem like only a small thing. It may seem like something that's not that important. But when you think about cooking oil, it has a substantial amount of fats in it. And that amount of fats equates to calories. So your calorie intake may not be exactly what you think it is. So let's say, for example, you think that you're eating in a 200 calorie deficit, but you're not tracking your cooking oil, you're not tracking your condiments like sauces to your meals and whatnot, and maybe you're not tracking things, you know, something as little as a little bit of milk in your coffee or a little bit of sugar in your coffee or tea at the end of the day, those calories add up. So instead of being in 200 calorie deficit, you may even be in a slight surplus. So all little things do count. Now, when it comes to not tracking things in my macros, really the only things that I'm not tracking, are things like my supplements, I actually don't track any of those because they're consistent. They're gonna be the same every single day. I don't track green vegetables because I think that it's promoting healthy eating and I feel as though I'm not going to be eating enough of those green vegetables to really throw out my calorie intake anyway. And the only other thing that I don't track is calorie-free drinks. So let's say, for example, like a sugar-free white monster energy drink or something like that. I won't track it, but everything else needs to be tracked Everything that goes in our mouth needs to be counted and accounted for in our calorie intake to make sure that we're getting the most consistent and accurate results. So I hope that's helped you guys. I just want to say a big thank you for tuning into today's episode. I hope you've taken away some value uh, from the show. As I said, if you did, feel free to share it with your friends on social media. Uh, but that's it for now, and I look forward to chatting to you again in next week's episode.